Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week in sports, two legs, four legs, a whole bunch of legs. It's undisputable in one way. It's a trillion-dollar sports business, and everybody is after it. And the guy that cuts right through it from a media perspective, the global director of media for Reuters, Dan Colarusso. Hi. Hey, Rick. Good to be back in the chair this week. Yeah, I don't know where you've been, but look, we missed you. 143rd running, Kentucky Derby, run for the roses. 127,000 mint juleps, 522,000 beer cans, 90% of the females wear big hats. 152 million on winning tickets last year, 193 million overall wagered. It is, it's, it's a very important race, but it's only one of many uh, during the entire year. And the racing business, it's interesting. What's your perspective on the racing business? Yeah, I don't have a broad perspective on the racing business. Let's talk about the Kentucky Derby in terms of the Super Bowl, the Final Four, and, and the Winter Classic. And when you think about it like that, they all have digital derivatives right now, and they all have digital outlets and, and, and tangents. In your estimation, if you were, again, if you were running the Kentucky Derby, what would you do? How would you get it ready for the digital age? Because I don't think it's quite made that move yet. I think the audience for it is ripe for that because it, it has that cultural touchstone to it. What would you do? Well, the first thing is you got to make the facility uh, first class and, uh, you know, w- wiring, Internet, all, all of the new facilities that we've seen, baseball and otherwise, have done that hundred and some odd million dollar renovation of Churchill Downs. So that's happening. But second and more important, there's got to be a way to stream and have the major events on digital as well. NBC Sports Net, NBC Sports is a partner and a pioneer for all of the Triple Crown. And there's got to be a way where people at OTB, Off Track Betting, the Indian Gaming, all of the ways that they have distracted themselves from the traditional horse racing, which was, remember, one of the biggest sports ever in the 50s, you got to get back to the roots. And the way to do it is to appeal to the millennials as well. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it has a great quality, too. It has a great, it's a great slice of Americana. It, I'd like to see how it evolves in the next few years. If there, if there is a big pregame show, a big postgame event, a big whatever to go with it, a comp, something complimentary um, that, that goes with it that they can monetize and create a digital outlet to, you know, kind of chum the water a little bit. Let's remember about excitement before we leave this topic. 35 mounts have followed the Derby victory with the second leg Preakness victory. So, and only 12 more went on to win the Triple Crown. So after this first week, everybody's excited. But two weeks later, after the Preakness, it drops off precipitously. Right. That's right. right. And, and the Belmont is nice for New York, but it, it, you're right. The Triple Crown has a certain uh, populist appeal to it that the first two races, if there are different winners, just don't grab. That's four-legged performance. Let's talk about human performance, the two-legged kind. The tracking company Whoop struck a deal with the NFL Players Association. Everybody who is drafted is given a wrist-worn, custom-designed monitoring device. They're calling it the Whoop Strap 2.0. Captures information, sleep, recovery, all things that players want to deal with, not only to improve their performance, 
but also teams can watch them. So biometric data has become central not only to the NFL Combine and the draft, but also the players and the teams going forward. And the Players Association struck a really good deal kind of getting on top of this and distributing these to the players. What do you think? Two points. Uh, I want one point and then one question for you. Um, imagine Johnny Manziel with one of these. Yeah, but he, like, would, he would track in a different place. Uh, we, right. we totally agree. I mean, it's, it's, that would be alcohol consumption. No, we can't say that on the air, but that's okay. We're going to say it anyway. Well, it does bring up an issue of privacy. Like, can a team, the same way they keep players contractually from riding dirt bikes in the offseason, let's say, can they mandate that a number two draft pick get seven hours of sleep a night and can they track it? So that's one thing and that's off to the side. But on a commercial level, um, does this allow, you said the Players Association uh, has some licensing rights in this. Does this allow an individual player to say, give you his biometrics or use his biometrics to create a workout program, a diet plan, anything that they can use to, I, I think Tom Brady and do I take Tom Brady's biometrics, try and match my own inferior biometrics to them somehow, and try to live like Tom Brady? Does it give Brady a branding opportunity beyond the typical sports revenue that, that he can make? Under this particular deal, the players are able to sell their individual data through the NFL Players Association's group licensing program, and it's the first time a pro sports players association partnered with a wearable tech company. The broader issue, of course, is who owns the data when they sign with the team and the team uses the data. Theoretically, the player has access to the data. It's his personal data, but of course, the team's need to evaluate for performance. It's a separate set of data. It's a separate set of usages, potentially. But they are separate purposes. One is money-making and one is team performance. So I think we're just beginning to see this issue. And the other interesting thing is, why Whoop and not Apple? And that, to me, uh, is the other issue. Like, why not get a bigger brand to come in here? Um, maybe the NFL wanted some leverage. Maybe they just wanted to dip their toes in the water and, and go from there. We had the, the CEO of Whoop on, and he was talking about, remember, some of the really cool stuff that he was planning on doing. He didn't talk about this, but you could tell he's a great business guy. And frankly, one of the reasons why this happened was that he impressed the Players Association and then did this deal as opposed to an Apple. Now, theoretically, um, Whoop, like some of the other smaller tech startups, will use this as an opportunity for alignment, for sale, for exit, but good for them. Right. Interesting. Interesting deal. Not as interesting, though, as Derek Jeter buying the Miami Marlins with Jeb Bush, possibly. Two of the most unlikely guys. You wouldn't see them in the club together at getting bottle service, but teaming up possibly to buy the Miami Marlins and the issue that uh, Dean Metropoulos, uh, uh, another billionaire private equity guy, coming into the game to possibly outbid them. Rick, how does the league typically skew in this? Is there a Jeter effect or will the league just go to the guy with the biggest pile of money? Metropolis, right? So his bottom line is that he wants to own a franchise for his kids. He tried to buy the Jacksonville Jaguars before Shad Khan, and his theory is, I want to give it to my kids. I'm not interested unless I'm the general partner. Jeb Bush and Derek Jeter put a deal together where Jeb would be the controlling partner like his brother was as was president with the Rangers, of the Rangers. Right? Yeah. Remember? And so yeah, the bottom line here is that Rob Manfred says, uh, we're not going to evaluate and approve a group until the Marlins decide who they want to sell it to. The Marlins were said to give Jeb and Derek an exclusive window, but I'm not sure if it's in writing. I'm not sure if it's a handshake. And if I'm out there trying to sell my badly performing $50 million a year losing franchise, and I knew that I had a guy who might have been the president of the U.S. and the governor of Florida bidding a billion three. But there's also a guy who could do anything like the 
Balmer effect when he bought the Clippers for $2 billion just to give it to his kids, I may want to figure out a way to revisit the deal and hand it to him. So this is a very short chapter in a very long book. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You say $50 million a year losing, but they do, uh, the, Miami does have that great new state, relatively new stadium, right? I mean, they built that. They stocked the team uh, a couple of years, uh, five years ago, six years ago. Um, that stadium is still in pretty great condition. It's not like they're going to be, need to replace that. They need that to have some postseason games in it, right? I mean, they need to make that investment pay off, no? They need that for a lot of different reasons. The stadium checkmark done, the long-term contract liability or not, Stan's contract is basically backloaded, so that's a huge liability going forward. And then the All-Star Game is in Miami this year. There is a big reason why baseball wants this resolved before the All-Star Game. There are a lot of people in the Florida press that saying this will be a coming-out party for we thought Jeb Bush and Derek Jeter. It's whoever it is that buys the franchises from Jeffrey, franchise from Jeffrey Loria. And many people would think it's a new awakening or beginning for a team uh, uh, that's basically starved for enlightened ownership, let's say. Yeah, they've been very boom and bust, right? I mean, they win and they break up the team. They, they restock, they lose a little bit, they break it up by the midseason. It's an interesting, the Marlins have been an interesting case study in that. And I, I think it, you, you mentioned losing $50 million a year. I guess the real money in professional sports is that long-term accumulated value of a franchise, right? And it's when you flip it. It's when you sell it is when you truly cash in. I don't think anybody is probably more familiar with that than your guest this week, right? George Pines, who's taken sports business and institutionalized it as an investment product in a, in a way a lot of people probably couldn't figure, right? Yeah. Very cool. By the way, he um, has uh, created a lot of different stuff and is a good friend, but he started uh, involving himself in running the family business called NASCAR. After then, IMG, ran IMG after the Mark McCormick era. He's now founded a company called Bruin Capital in January 2015. The portfolio of companies grown to include more than 1,100 employees, 24 offices, eight countries. And he's better than most to talk about the accumulated value, not only of franchises, but assets, properties, television, media, and the like. Uh, we were very glad to catch up with George at the Sloan MI event in Boston last month, and here's what George Pine has to say. George is very unique. I'll let him tell the story, but he has cornered the market on being very successful in a whole bunch of thought-changing organizations in a very short period of time, and then moving to the next one. I guess IMG, NASCAR, and Bruin Capital come to mind, but Tell us about your career in 30 seconds. That's quick. So we had a nice run, for, <laughs> nice run at NASCAR, nice run at IMG, and uh, we're back at it again at Bruin Sports Capital. We've invested in seven companies in about 24 months with one fund, and then I'm also the chairman of a fund called Courtside Ventures that's invested in 15 early-stage digital companies. So we're, we're back at it. We're ready for action and having a good time. Let's go broad at 30,000 feet relative to Bruin Capital. It's a risk anytime you take your credibility and you go from running a large organization to running another one to effectively a startup. At your level, it's a different startup. You wouldn't have done it if you didn't have confidence in your ability, but also that the economy wasn't right. right? Well, you know, I, I, want to, I have to give some people credit. Yeah, you know, I work for Ted Forsman. I learned a lot from Ted. I work for Bill France and the France family. I learned a lot there. I work yeah. for John Portman. I learned a lot there. So I think that background really prepared me well for what I'm doing. Now, I will say I started out in January of 2015 in the Regis Temporary Office by myself. 
And today, Bruin Sports Capital, our, our portfolio companies have uh, 1,100 employees and 24 offices operating in nine countries around the world. That's a lot in a short time, but uh, it's been, been, a lot, been a lot of fun. How big did you say you were in January 15 when you started that one office? It was just one. It wasn't even an office. It was, it was me and a phone. Yeah. But, uh, but we, uh, you know, we've, we've, we're really pleased with where we are. The success of startups like that is, I assume you can't afford any major mistakes, but also you have to pick and choose your targets. Yeah, and, we, you know, as a startup, we have a wealthy families that are global backing us up, as well as WPP, who's the buys 42% of the ads in the world. So we had really strategic investors that gave us a lot of credibility. And then, you know, we've been at this for 25 years. And I think that's why, you know, our client base includes uh, UEFA, FIFA, the NFL, ESPN, Sky, Mercedes-Benz, Anderson and Bush. You know, we have blue chip uh, roster of clients. Primary mandate of Bruin Capital? Well, you know, one of the things, we want to take a long-term perspective and growing business. So we have long-term patient capital and we just want to grow and build great uh, enterprises. Sector you really enjoy, obviously then segue into digital, but well, I think I, I think our, our boldest bet or investment is a company called Delta Tray. Delta Tray is an end-to-end -end media services company that's 30 years old that really provides the back-end technical solutions to FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League, the European Golf Tour, the BBC, Sky, NHK, Global. Um, and they're very good at what they do. They've been the back end to some of the biggest events in the world, the World Cup, the UEFA Championships, the Olympics, uh, the cricket. And so we're betting on, on media and technology for the future. George Pine, can we generalize about media now? It's so hard to do it because it evolves every day. But certainly the device that we watched content on are far different than the devices that our kids watch content on. Where's it going? Well, it, it, it's going on many platforms. Yeah. I have four teenagers, and, yeah. and my teenagers outside of sports really don't watch TV. Right. And when they watch shows, it's on a device. So it, being around young people by, by yeah. force of habit, you can see people are consuming news and information quite differently. And even an old guy like me, I, I'm, I'm consuming it differently. So. If you want to grow, you're going to have to be part of the channel change. You can't, you can't change it. As you or pick your, at, no, no, no pun taken, because it's a serious thing. How do you pick your investment spots in a very volatile media space, especially since you don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow? Well, we, the company, we've, our, one of our bigger investments, Delta Tray, has been in business for 30 years. Okay. And they've been providing solutions to their uh, clients for 30 years. They started in linear television, they started collecting data at Formula One, and with their clients they've migrated to becoming a solutions provider and an integrated approach. So we, we've had tried and true companies. And so the evolution long term between the big guys who are the big content guys, the four networks that everybody remembers, and the Yahoo, Snapchats, Amazons, uh, Facebook. Where is the bidding on rights issues going? Are, are we all going to amalgamate? Are they all going to joint venture? We don't know the answer, but what's your prediction? We don't know the answer, yeah. and the rights are tied up and staggered, which yeah. will make it a, a little bit later, more later developed. But I always think, you know, when, when you look back in America, you know, what was Fox before it had the NFL yeah. and then after the NFL? And I believe someday there'll be a new uh, media distribution outlet that will make a big bet on sports rights. And just like the NFL changed Fox forever, I think that'll change uh, media as well. When that happens, who that is, 
that, that's to be determined. Do we all agree that that is one of the most important determiners of the value propositions of franchises going forward because everybody's saying there's got to be a ceiling and there's never a ceiling. Well, sports rights have been going up for 25 or yeah. 30 years. I remember going into Bill France every year, every couple of years saying, look, there's a bubble, sports rights are high, we're not going to get the increase we're going to get. And he'd say, listen, young man, yeah. you're wrong. Yeah. And you know what? He was right and we were wrong. So I can say this, clearly sports rights will be the most valuable entity in the media landscape what happens within the media landscape and how it all shakes out, I think, is to be determined. And the biggest problem, I assume, you as a master problem solver on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, how do you deal with the um, sports as reality TV versus the ability to archive everything and the advertisers not understanding through their agencies that there is value to both. Uh, that's got to be a big issue. Right. Uh, but you know what well, the great thing is sports is a lifestyle and it engages people and so I think with all the new devices and all the way to experience things I think it actually increases the engagement. So I think the changes in media are actually create more value over time and I think that creates more options for advertisers. Alright, George Pine the businessman. So let's talk a little bit about IMG and your ability to ride the wave of an amazing global company. Uh, did you ever think, I mean, when you started with it, it's a heck of a story, but it's Mark McCormick's story, but then it's Teddy Forsman's story. Yeah, I mean, Mark, look, both guys accomplished tremendous things. What Mark McCormack did was incredible. He built a company that was truly global and was one of a kind. And so, you know, I never met Mark, but I would have loved to have met yeah, him because yeah. he was a phenomenal entrepreneur. And look, Ted Forsman came in and bought IMG for $750 million and sold it for $2.4 billion. Right. So that's my definition of a success. And I'm sure WME and IMG are going to go on to do great things as well in the future. And in your NASCAR perspective, if you called it a family business, you would demean it. But yet it's run as a family business. Uh, but it's a billion dollar business. And so what's, what do you take away from well, being involved I, I, I think, one, I love working for a family yeah. business because all you have to do is convince yeah. a family member of right. what the right thing to do is, yeah. and, they, and they did it. And, of course, 95 to 05 was an incredible run at NASCAR. You know, when I started at NASCAR, it was called Winston Cup Racing. Yeah. It wasn't called NASCAR. And 16 races were on the Nashville network. So uh, to start there and end where we did was a, was a great run. It's also incredible that George Pine has the ability to define success and failure based on his particular length of time with a company that he's been involved in. How, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> you're, more, you're more than lucky. A couple more on NASCAR, then we'll let you go. Monster Energy, uh, good brand, bad brand, young demographics. Sprint was such a great fit, but they couldn't control everything. So what's your take? Well, they've had great title sponsors over the years. Uh, even Winston, in its era, did a lot of great things to help grow the sport, uh, absent the, the tobacco issue. But then Sprint was a terrific title sponsor. Look, Monster Energy, the positives of Mar Monster Energy is they'll, they'll use, I think they'll use the property, and it will reach a younger demo, which is important to NASCAR. Management style, you've been in three incredibly more but three incredibly diverse organizations. Commonalities, differences? Well, I think I've learned a lot. I'm, I'm a lot more polished than I was 10 years ago. I, I, but, by the way, I can attest, I can attest <laughs> but, to that. But I, I do think each experience for me, IMG, at NASCAR I, was, I went in, built something from the ground up really. Uh, IMG, I came in at a very high level and had to work uh, that was different. And so those two experiences really shape who I am today and I think have, have better prepared me for what I'm doing.
tremendous left guard at Brown, protected Mark Donovan. We've had him on before, uh, as he said off camera, made Mark Donovan, Donovan into the good-looking guy he is now. Because that's true. Sackless. And that's he's true. got a good-looking wife, so I really took care Better of Better-looking wife than Mark, got to tell you that. Uh, could he have played in the NFL? Who? You. I don't know. You know, I'm not, my dad, my granddad, yeah. my brother all played in the NFL. I got hurt a lot, but I'm happy with how I turned out. Yeah. I was the smallest guy in my family, so uh, my brothers picked on me even though I was, the young, I was the oldest. And Virginia Tech is in good shape. That's my, my brother, yes. Jim. He was a heck of a player, started 100 games in the NFL and has his number retired. And if you go to Blacksburg, you'll see his uh, name in the end zone. So Boston gets this as well. Boston sports fan, future Love Boston it. sports. I, I, How do you, feel? you know, you can take the guy out of Boston, but you can't take Boston out of the guy. My kids are all Boston sports fans, even though we've never lived here. We uh, go to Falmouth in the summertime. Love the Patriots, Celtics, Red Sox, and Bruins. Had a paper route, saved my money. Used to buy tickets, take a friend to Foxborough Stadium and uh, to watch the Celtics. I even went when the Red Sox lost in 1977 when they blew the 14-game lead. Was that the Bucky Dot home run? I bought tickets to four games that, uh, in September that the Yankees swept the Red Sox. I used all my oh, paper route money. So wow. I, I, go, I go way back. That was, by the way, the first unsuccessful venture that George Bynum yeah, has ever, very been, ever, ever been affiliated with. So, And the other thing, too, is I've done interviews when George has been into, in Dallas and he puts the uh, kind of fake Southern accent on. Yeah, you know, you could, you could how really, you all doing? Now, I, you know, I, got a, <laughs> I got a company we bought in Italy, Double Trades. Yeah. Oh, so, I can't imagine so, with your Italian so I now, now I say ciao. George, I used yeah. to say y'all, so yeah. there you go. That's perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you, 10 years ago, you'd have heard some crap. That was really polished. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank Good you, to see man. you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.